Let's get into the Word of God. First Corinthians, please turn to First Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. And uh, don't say men too loudly or cheer right now, okay? But if you look, we're getting close to the end of this book. And maybe we should cheer because like, hey, we made it all the way through. That's awesome. Uh, but there are 16 chapters in First Corinthians. We're into 15 starting today. And so it's good to take a little look at the big picture here. And Paul has used a large portion of this letter uh, to the church to answer uh, several questions that they had asked. And so we've learned things, learned about things like uh, having a servant's heart and mindset, uh, sexual immorality, church discipline, settling matters and disagreements within the church. Uh, We've learned about marriage and divorce, idolatry, convictions and our consciences. We've learned about deferring to our brothers and sisters in Christ, not demanding that we get our own way when we disagree with others, but seeking the benefit of our brothers and sisters. We've learned about the roles of husbands and wives, uh, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts and their purpose. We even learned a bunch of information about the sign gifts and what that was all about. And we also learned about the way the local church ought to function together as a united whole, uh, even during our worship services. And even though we've learned about all these things, I hope that you've been able to see and realize that there's something that has informed every other topic that was taken up in this letter, like a thread that was woven all the way through to hold it all together, informing all the parts and pieces. Maybe even like a cardiovascular system, uh, veins and arteries carrying the blood throughout the rest of the body, making it work, making it all healthy. And that thing that we've brought up over and over, that thing that is the heart of this book, is the gospel. Uh, The love of God displayed through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. It's no accident that Paul started this letter the way that he did. In the first chapters, in the midst of, in the midst of Paul's rebuke to the church for their factions, for their divisions, Paul kept writing things like this, uh, that he'd been sent by Christ to preach the gospel. Not with eloquence, but plainly, lest the cross be emptied of his power. Uh, Paul didn't want the people talking about his uh, gifts in public speaking or how great of an influencer he was. He wanted them talking about and learning about the gospel, believing in the gospel. He called the cross the power of God to those who are being saved by it. He reminded the church that uh, he desired to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Simply put, Paul set about uh, right away in the beginning of this letter to reset, to hit the reset button, to reorient their view, their perspective. They had written to him about all these problems, all these disagreements, all these divisions, not realizing that their biggest problem was not any of these things, but that they had come to see any of those things as more significant than the gospel. So Paul turns their attention back to the gospel and then answers all their questions in light of the gospel. And now in chapter 15, he's going to bring our focus back to the gospel. So as we work through this passage, these two verses today, uh, we're going to find five things that we must remember. Uh, They were given to the church at Corinth and things that we must remember about the gospel. Five things we must remember about the gospel. So starting in verse 1, chapter 15, Paul starts with this. Now, now, having answered all these questions, having addressed all of these issues, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So in these just these two verses, we have these five things to remember about the gospel. Number one, the gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached. We know and understand that God is the only one who holds the power to convert people, uh, to bring a person who is dead in their sin to life. 
But by his sovereign and good will, he has chosen to use us to proclaim the message of salvation. We are the instruments that he uses to spread the message through which he brings people to life. Someone had to preach the gospel to the Corinthian people, didn't he? Didn't they? Uh, Look at Acts 16. Go ahead and turn back to Acts 16. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 8. Let's take a second and look back and see how things got started, how the church uh, came into existence at at, uh, Corinth. So Acts 18, verses 1 through 8 say this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So there's some work evangelism right there. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He was preaching to them the gospel. And when they, uh, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. It's so interesting. Uh, the Jewish custom. Uh, when, when a Jew would leave a Gentile city, they would shake the dust off or they would knock it off of their sandals as they left town. They didn't want any of that uh, Gentile or that... Um, heathen, those heathen germs or whatever, they wouldn't call them germs, but you get the idea. They didn't want any of that heathen left on them when they left town. So they would shake the dust off of themselves as they left to signify. That's not a very nice way to say goodbye, is it? (laughs) But what has Paul just done? And he did this in, in a couple of different occasions. He's leaving behind the Jewish people and shaking the dust off. He's letting them know, you're the heathens. You have rejected the Messiah. That's what he's signifying to them, communicating to them. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. And he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went all the way to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door. Next door to the synagogue. Well, that works out pretty well. And Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. People in Corinth believed and followed the Lord on the heels of what? (laughs) On the heels of the obedience of another person, a Christian, who was willing to share the gospel with them. You can't have one without the other. Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Sometimes we can see the world around us and think, how could people be like that? How are they going to know unless they are told? And how will they hear if someone isn't preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, which we have been? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It doesn't say to convert them. It doesn't say uh, to make sure that they are uh, saved, not to win. It just says to preach. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Who shared the gospel with you? Do you remember? Who shared the gospel with you? Was it your mother? Was it your father? Your neighbor? A co-worker? A friend? Perhaps a Sunday school teacher or the pastor at church? For some of us, we might say that a number of those different people shared the gospel with us, but then eventually, God graciously opened our eyes and brought us to repentance and salvation. But for all of us, even if you first saw the gospel in a little uh, booklet, 
little booklet like we have out in our foyer like this. Even if it was this. Somebody gave it to you. Even if you first saw it on a web page or even a YouTube video. Somebody did that. Somebody put that there. Wherever we heard it from, wherever we heard it from, and from whomever we heard it from, somebody took the time, stuck their neck out, and shared the gospel with you. And God used them to bring you into his family, didn't he? And now, since we're still here on this earth, since Jesus hasn't come back yet, we know this, there are more souls to be saved God is not going to let one of his sheep perish. Every one of God's elect will come to repentance. We are guaranteed success in this mission. And God is honored in our obedience to him, whether the person you share with believes or not. Your feet are still just as beautiful. Remember, we don't have the power to save, but we've been commissioned to tell, to proclaim. We have been commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. So is anyone coming to mind right now? Is there someone you've been praying for? Someone who you've maybe even yet to share the message with? I encourage you, our our deacons and I, each month, uh, we have one person that we've shared with each other that we're praying for every month. When we come together that Tuesday night, Uh, We'll go through that list, and anybody who's had interactions, conversations, updates, we'll share that with each other. And each time we meet, pray for those eight individuals. I'd encourage you, uh, do that with one another. You don't have to have an official sign-up sheet for that. Do that with one another. Pray for those people. Let's pray for those people together on Sunday evenings at our Bible study and prayer meeting starting next Sunday. And be doing that day in and day out. And let's make sure that we share the gospel with them. The gospel must be preached. And we are to be the preachers. Number two, the gospel must be received. The gospel must be received. How many of you know that if you read the nutrition facts on your favorite candy... When you read those nutrition facts on your candy, you're probably not going to pay attention to any of that, and you'll just plow through the whole bag anyways, right? That's what we often do. Uh, The information that we can read through in those nutrition facts are only going to prove useful to us if we what? If we receive it. If we take it in, take it to heart. we got to take it to heart and and truly put our faith in those nutrition facts. And, and, And if it says... Five candies are a full serving. If we're being good, how many of those are we going to eat? Well, five. Or maybe less, right? If you've been following along in our devotions this week also, we saw a good example of this call uh, to receive the message preached, Acts 13. We don't get to see what Paul preached in every city, uh, everywhere he went. But in, in Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas have gone to Antioch and Pisidia, Uh, we get to read at least a part of his message to them. So Acts 13, verses 38 to 41, we see this call for a response. He says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, of course, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul says, I just preached to you the gospel. And by him, everyone who believes the gospel received is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Paul's saying, if you're relying on your good works and your good record to save you, then you are still under bondage because everyone has fallen short of God's perfect standard. But if you receive God's gift of salvation purchased through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, then your sins are forgiven and you're saved. And then Paul gives them this warning. It says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then this verse is from Habakkuk uh, 1.5. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. That doesn't sound like he's saying, Please, 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 please. <laughs> Watch out, he says. This is what Habakkuk said. I am doing a work in your days. 
This is from the Lord. A work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Well, that's a strange invitation, isn't it? Paul even quotes for them this prophecy from the Old Testament, which warns Israel that most of them are not going to receive the message, the truth. Most of them are not going to believe. And he's saying to them, look, please do not be in the majority. Do not reject it. You must believe. You must receive this truth to be saved. Romans 10, 8 through 13. Uh, But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So the gospel has been preached to me. I understand it. I get it. Now what? Verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's reception, isn't there? Believing in Christ For our salvation. For with the heart, the inner man, one believes and is justified. Just means, remember, Christ in Christ we are declared righteous, not guilty. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Saved from the penalty of our sin in eternal hell. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Receive it. The gospel must be received. Number three, the gospel must be where we stand. I say it this way, we must stand in the gospel. There's a little comparison contrast we're going to do here. What were the things that the Corinthian church was standing, that what they were standing in? And it's not that they couldn't have a view about any of those things, but the, what they stood in was going to have an impact on how they saw those things. So Paul writes in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you Stand. The gospel, church, is where we must take our stand. The gospel is where we stand firmly. If we stand anywhere else, we will not stand firmly. The gospel is what we stand for. And what we choose to stand for will indicate where we are standing. Does that make sense? The things that we fight for, the things that we holler about, the things that we say, well, we can't accept this. Whatever those things are, it's going to tell us and tell the world around us what we are really standing in. And we'll know whether it's the gospel or not. The Corinthian church, as I said, had all kinds of things they wanted to stand for. Their favorite preacher, their favorite teacher. Uh, they were willing to stand for their rights to property possessions. They took a stand for their views on sexuality, marriage, divorce. They took a stand for their own personal conscience and how everyone else should think the same way they do about everything. They were willing to take a stand for their right to participate in the worship service however they wanted. No matter how uncomfortable, how awkward, or even how humiliating it may have been for others in the church. The people in the church stood for a lot of things. And ultimately, it was looking like uh, where they stood, it's not in all those things, right? Where they stood was in their own selfishness. Getting what they wanted for themselves. And all they fought for was just an indication of where they stood. And as we've seen early in this letter, uh, had they remembered to stand in the gospel all these other issues would have made a whole lot more sense. Would have been able to figure these things out together. Uh, How important these things they stood for were or weren't. uh, How to reason through the right answers. How to exercise their liberty in love. How to give of themselves sacrificially for the benefit of others. For the cause of the church. When they forgot that they should have been standing for and in the gospel, everything else went haywire. Does that make sense? So church, First Baptist, there is only one thing in which we should stand. 
And only if we continue to stand in the gospel will we remain healthy. We, we can have all kinds of people here. We will only be healthy if we are standing in the gospel. Sometimes we, uh, not Corinth, us today, the church today in 2020, we can be willing to take our stand for and in all kinds of things. We need to take an honest assessment of our own hearts, not think about all the other churches out there. Think about us. We could take stands for music, music styles, music this, that, and the other thing for, for decorations. We ought to do the church this way. We ought to do the church that way. Uh, schedules, what time should be, what days should be, when I should have that room, furniture in the church, uh, convictions about things that people would want to do or say you can do or can't do, friend groups, who I spend time with, who, who my click is here or there, uh, who we might uh, welcome in this kind of person but not be quick to welcome in this kind of person, uh, vacation times, hobbies, interests, this could go on and on. Dare I say it even maybe in a year like this? Politics. And by the way, just a commercial break, it might be a healthy exercise. A healthy exercise for us to go maybe through scrolling through our social media, our text messages, thinking through our conversations. If the world looks at those things, what do they learn about what we stand for? What are the things that we holler about? What are those things? What does it say? What would the world say, be led to believe that we're all about? And again, if we're standing in the gospel, we'll have ideas about all these things, but they're not going to be the center and the root of it all, are they? Those will just be an outworking of where we really are. And even the way that we say it, right? I keep saying holler about. We probably won't be hollering at anyone, will we? If we stand in any of these other things, as important as we think they might be. And if we, aren't, if we aren't standing in the gospel, we will not remain standing for long. And listen, there are, there are church buildings all over the country, all over the world with people inside them today. And some of them might look liberal and some of them might look conservative. But that doesn't mean the church inside of all of those buildings is actually the church. And that they're actually worshiping Jesus inside. Does that make sense? We can have church without being the church. Listen to what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 through 5. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him, this is Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. That's all great, church. But, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And Jesus says this, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Whoa. If you think about it, if the church at Ephesus left their first love long enough, and there wasn't repentance. And then eventually the people ceased to stand firm in the gospel. How many new converts would there be? I say, well, there probably won't be any. And when there were no more people in the church, uh, the church building, wherever they were meeting, who were truly saved, their lamp being removed... When their light was gone, let's say it was there one Sunday and it's gone the next, would they even realize it? Did they even know? Would they have known? Uh, they weren't standing in the gospel anymore. They weren't fighting for the right things anymore. Those, the gospel wasn't important to them. All these other things they're fighting for are more important to them. Non-gospel, non-great commission things. Would they have even realized it? In the name of Christ, they're fighting for these things under the auspices of having church, but their lampstand removed. Could it be? 
And they could have gone right back into the church building that next Sunday, pushed their agenda all over again, rallied up themselves to keep on fighting that good fight. And they could have used or maybe misused their Bibles and and said Jesus' name and sang Jesus' songs to back up those erroneous claims. But the true church, nowhere to be seen. Religious activity, people in seats, spiritually void, dead. Remember Jesus said this, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no neutral. Praise God for this. The First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant has been in existence since 1886. If you're a member of this church, you are a member of a body that has been alive for 134 years. May her lamp continue to burn brightly. May she, and we say may we, stand firm in the truth of the gospel, never leaving behind our first love, never forgetting to prioritize the gospel message and the mission we have been given by Christ, passing it on faithfully to the next generation, faithfully proclaiming it to our neighbors and to the nations until our Savior returns and our work is done. Church, we have a purpose. This is not... A social club. This is not fun and games. This is not something we do because we like the flavor of this better than the flavor of the church down the road. We're on a mission. We have a purpose. Let's remain faithful to it. Church, the gospel and nothing else, the gospel must be where we stand. Number four, the gospel must be our only hope of salvation. Paul writes in verse 2, by which you are being saved. And I want to make this clear. First, the verb verb saved is written in in the passive voice here in the Greek. In grammar, that means that you are not the one doing the action. Active voice means you're doing it. Passive voice means it's being done to you. So think for a second here. What does the word saved mean? The word saved, what does it mean? Uh, when you go to the beach, oh, there's usually signs there that tell you uh, what to do if you get caught in that terrible undertow. And, and what are you supposed to do? Uh, you can't swim against that force, that current. Uh, so if you get caught in it, if you can even figure out what direction you're pointed, you're supposed to swim sideways, uh, parallel with the coastline, right? And, and if you're able to, once you get out past that pole, then you can start swimming back to shore. No easy task. No easy task, right? But if you make it out and you swim up to the beach and eventually you're up there and you're laying on the sand and you're catching your breath and there are no lifeguards on duty, guess what you're not going to say? Thank you, lifeguard, for saving me. You're not going to say that. There's no lifeguard there. No one saved you. It's not true. You did it yourself. Listen, if you think you're going to go to heaven because you're better than some other people you know, if you believe that you and God are good because you've kept all the rules as good as you should be expected to, if that's why you call yourself saved, you don't understand the gospel. Now think about this. When a lifeguard is on duty and you're out there in the water and you're struggling and you're fighting and you're about to start drowning and the lifeguard gets out there and tries to grab you up and starts swimming back to shore, if you keep fighting, you keep kicking, scratching, clawing, fighting for your survival, what are they going to say to you? Stop! (laughs) Stop fighting! You're making this harder! You're going to kill us both! If you're going to be saved by that lifeguard, they must be your only hope. You have nothing to contribute And if you try to contribute, it's not going to go well. And then in that situation, when you, when you get to the shore, when you catch your breath, while the lifeguard is catching their breath, what can you say now? Lifeguard, thank you for saving me. We cannot scratch and claw our way into heaven. We cannot do enough good deeds to get ourselves into heaven. 
If we're trying to be good enough, there is no saving going on. We know these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Your faith is not a work that you muster up to do. This is God's doing. It is a gift. Your faith, the grace God gives you to have the faith, to believe, to receive, it is all by God's grace. It says it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If that lifeguard saved you, when you got into shore, it would be really ridiculous when everyone else was lauding the bravery and the courage of that lifeguard, the news people were there taking pictures for the paper and everything about how this lifeguard saved the day, for you to stand along the side there and say, yep, I was pretty awesome out there, wasn't I? And in heaven, when you stand before the Lord, you will not be patting yourself on the back. You will not be saying, you're welcome. Jesus, you're welcome. That's not how that's going to go down. No way. Instead, if we can get up off the floor from the sheer delight and worship and reverence and amazement to be granted the privilege of being in his presence. You know, when we see Jesus face to face, it's going to be better than the paintings that some of us might have in our houses. We know this, right? The glory revealed of our Savior. I think we might say something more along the lines of, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I don't deserve this. Thank you for dying in my place, taking the wrath I deserve. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you. And listen, we're still tempted, aren't we? We look at other people and we still might evaluate ourselves and think we're a little better than other people. We might even get the idea that Jesus didn't have to die as hard for me as he had died for somebody else. Bull, but when we see him face to face, we'll know, won't we? We'll know every bit of the depth of our sin and our hopelessness without him. And the worship will grow and expand. And that's what we have to look forward to because of God's grace. God's unmerited favor, which he has chosen to give to us. But even while we wait for that day, did you know that the gospel is also the way we are progressively being saved? And Paul uses that term that way he speaks of our growth as Christians, not just our position in Christ, but also our progressive sanctification. We are all not there yet. We are all in this process of continuing to grow. Philippians two twelve through 16, Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out meaning the idea of taking a clay pot or a tin or something and, and shaping it, forming it into the shape that you want it to be, what you want it to ultimately become. And for us, that shape is the image of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. He's the shaper and the conformer, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember, our salvation is not just a get out of hell free card, but salvation also results in our lives here being changed and the purpose of our lives being changed. We have a mission to fulfill. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Remember, when we grumble, we're telling God that he messed up. It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. Good thing there's no grumbling or complaining going on in the world around us today. Good thing we never have anything to do with that. Ooh, wait. <laughs> right? Right? When we succeed by God's grace in not joining a crooked and twisted generation and grumbling and complaining, it says this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you know why we shouldn't get sucked into the vortex of all that? Because God didn't give us to the world for that. He gave us to the world for the gospel, for Christ, 
It is more important that we not do that because we have a more important mission. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Stand firm, standing firm in the gospel, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Philippians 3.16, he says it this way, only let us hold true, present tense, to what we have attained. We have attained salvation through the gospel, now let's hold true, hold true to it as we run this race. And we will run this race well, by holding on to it, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we are saved by the gospel, and we grow by the gospel. Therefore, the gospel must be our only hope of salvation. Then number five, and we're not almost done yet, but we are in the last one, okay? Number five, the gospel must be held with a firm grip. The gospel must be held with a firm grip. Verse 2 says, By which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In order to help us to understand what's going on here in this, in this part of the verse, I want to go back. Maybe remember as we went through the Gospel of John. Let's go back to John 2, verses 23 through 25. It says this, now, when he, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed. They say, sweet, good. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You remember this? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So you say, well, what happened here? What is this? Why didn't Jesus latch on to them? Why, why didn't he entrust himself or commit himself to them? Well, what kind of believing were they believing? It says it was vain. They loved those signs and miracles. They did not receive salvation in Christ. This is incredibly important, and it startles us. If it startles us into sitting up straight, if it startles us into action, into taking this stuff seriously, maybe even bringing us to true repentance and salvation, then great, great. Please understand, there is a difference between believing that Jesus is great and God is good and Jesus saves and going to church is good and God does good stuff for good people, etc., etc. There's a difference between believing that and believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Two very different things. There's a difference from acknowledging Jesus is awesome and calling Jesus your Lord. And here's part of the danger. Both of those belief systems can change your life. They can both change the course of your life. You can be a happy, Christianized, Judeo-Christian worldview, happy American and churchgoer with a nice family, nice house, nice car, all that. And many would certainly argue that that would be a better life than, than perhaps a life of maybe a drug addict uh, who's jobless, angry with God, burned all of his bridges with his family. The Jesus is awesome, but not Lord plan can still be life-changing and deceiving. But it's vanity if Jesus isn't Lord. Matthew 7. What did Jesus say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we go to church enough? Didn't we stay away from bad things? I didn't sleep around. I never did drugs. I was good to my kids. I worked hard. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And if that person who was living that good life goes off the deep end, as some would say, or maybe that college kid, the good kid goes off to college and and leaves the church and never comes back, we might even go so far as to say that maybe we think they lost their salvation or something. But what does the Word of God say? Well, in John 3, remember that Jesus told Nicodemus that we must be born again and born from above. If we're born again, in John 3, it says that we are born again because we were born of the Spirit. It wasn't a work of our fleshly will. When you were in your mama's tummy, did you say, okay, it's time now? Before your parents ever met each other, did you say, hey, you guys get together because I'd like to be born? It was not a a desire of our will. God made us. We were conceived. And in our spiritual birth, we were birthed by the Spirit of God. And so we believed and repented. In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the Spirit bringing us to life, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So we know this. Everyone who is born again will see Jesus face to face in glory and will be perfected in righteousness on that day. Not because we had the guts and the strength to to last it out, but because God graciously promised our perseverance. John 10 Jesus says things like this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God the Father grabs a hold of you and gives you to His Son, and the Son of God grabs a hold of you, and no one can ever pluck us out of their hand. Not even us. Christians, when you have a firm grip on the gospel, when you have a firm grip on Jesus, do you know why? It's because Jesus first has a firm grip on you. And he will never let you go. I remember when I was 16 years old, I was about to be a senior in high school. I was sitting at a campground with a college student who who stuck out his neck and shared the gospel with me. And I'd heard the gospel message so many times. Some of you have heard this before. I, I grew up in the church. My grandpa was the preacher when I was growing up. I heard the gospel many, many times. And I prayed a prayer I prayed that prayer when I was five years old. And that's what everybody does, right? In my five-year-old mind? Who wouldn't do this? Who doesn't want to make their parents happy? Who doesn't want to drink the grape juice with all the big people when we take communion? My sister did it. My parents did it. My uncles did it. My cousins did it. My grandpa. Everybody I know in my whole big world. This is what you do. But later, I knew. I knew. The ways that I was thinking, the things that I was wanting to do, the plans I had for when I was out from under the watchful eye of my parents. (laughs) When I was little, I believed in vain. Believed in vain. Just sounded like a good idea at the time. I didn't have a firm grip on it. I didn't understand. There were things my little five-year-old mind wanted in my Christian bubble that eventually popped as I got older. And you don't have to be five for that to happen. You know that? Whatever kind of bubble we want to construct, it can be there no matter how old we are. And so here I am, though, outside 
at camp. This guy is sharing the gospel with me. And after a little prodding on his part, uh, there was a prodding that had less to do with him and more to do with God. And I knew, I knew then, I was either going to keep running or I was going to submit. Jesus was either Lord or he wasn't. And I understood. I wasn't goofing around. I wasn't just trying to get the guy off my back. I wasn't trying to make anyone happy. I'd given that up. I wasn't just trying to uh, hear a new trend and give it a shot. I wasn't hoping for goodies from God. I pray this, you give me that. I wasn't on a mission to try to find myself. I knew that God is God. That God is just. That God is creator. He's holy. All-knowing. And those things are bad news for us if we reject him, aren't they? I knew that Jesus died to take the wrath of God that I deserved for the forgiveness of our sin. I knew it. And I understood that if I surrendered, if I received this gift of life, that my life was going to change. I was going to have a new master. Jesus was going to be Lord. And I knew that was rightfully so. If he's my maker and my redeemer, who else has a right to be my Lord? By God's grace, I had a firm understanding of what was happening. By God's grace. And I still do today. And by God's grace, I repented and my life changed. Not everything, not all right away, not instantaneous perfection, but it started to change right then. And it hasn't stopped since. And it won't stop until I see Jesus face to face. Now, some of you, say this, okay? Some of you did get saved when you were five. And that's great. Okay? To you, I say that's an awesome testimony. And if you know you understood, you have a firm grip on the gospel, you know that Jesus is Lord, and you see yourself growing and changing, praise God. Some of us get saved young, don't we? Some of us when we're teenagers. Some of us when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s. Some of us maybe in our 70s and 80s when we've been going to church for 50-some years. We all have a different story that way. But we all get saved by the same gospel. So how about you? Has Jesus grabbed a hold of you? Do you have a firm understanding of the gospel? Have you received this offer of forgiveness and eternal life offered to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, do it today. Do it today. Come talk to me. Talk to your Christian friends sitting next to you. Believe in Jesus and be saved today. And if you have, Christians, I encourage you, if, you, if you've not joined together with us in this cause do join together with us and then church let's preach the gospel not just here let's do it here and out there let's preach the gospel let's encourage others to receive the gospel let's stand in and stand for the gospel. Boy, we do that right now. Talk about bright lights in a world of darkness. And let's remember that the gospel is our only hope for salvation. Our only hope for salvation. And that the gospel is our fuel for sanctification. And then church, let's hold fast. 
hold firmly to this truth. And isn't it amazing? We'll get here next week, but the very next verse in this chapter, after Paul says, hold firmly to this, he tells them what the gospel is again. The very next verse gives us this creed, one of the earliest creeds, if not the first, from the early 40s A.D., and here's what it is. That Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we're all about. That's what we stand on. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, with so many other things going on, so many distractions presented, Lord, so many, uh, so many messages, so many uh, things that we can get fired up about that, that are in this way very true and very apparent and, and good with this mixed in uh, an untruth lies. God, may we be a people that stand firmly and hold firmly to the truth of the gospel. May we be a people who love your word, faithfully studying, learning, receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit by getting into his inspired truth. God, may we be a church that values, stands on, holds firm to, preaches the gospel message. That the way that we see our music and the way that we see chairs or pews or windows or, or uh, Sunday service times or whatever it might be, the way we see work, the way we see our neighbors, the way we see politics, the way we see everything in this world around us, Lord, may we see it through the lens of Scripture and through the message of the gospel lest we fall. God, please use us in this way. God, use us as your instruments to bring many to repentance. God, use us for your glory. And God, we thank you that that in this, and only in this, is where we'll find peace and rest and joy. That your yoke is easy and your burden is light if we will trust in you and follow hard after you. Give us grace, Lord, that we would continue to grow in the gospel. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.